going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning to start and then bouncing around like we have the last couple of weeks. Philippians chapter 4. We are a couple weeks into now our, uh, our series that we are kicking the year off with, Finding Rhythm, Pursuing the Paradox of Faithful... Uh, I can't even talk. Finding, finding Rhythm, Pursuing the Paradox of Faithful Living. Um, that little title is important for us because it communicates, it kind of packs a punch with, uh, with that subtitle there and, and, and what it is that we're trying to... Uh, trying to cover because what it is that that idea of being a, a paradox of faithful living I don't know if that's how you think about the Christian life uh, probably not but there is a sense in which uh, a faithful living of following Jesus calls us uh, to what seems to be two very opposite ideas but even though they are uh, opposites God still calls us to both it is a paradox of our faith that God calls us to do both of these things uh, that seem to be opposite. So we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. We saw waiting and pursuing. He calls us to do both of those. Last week we talked about fasting and feasting. He calls us to do both of those. And today we will look at this idea of contentment versus restlessness. How, how do we handle it? When the Bible calls us to these things that are paradoxes, these things that seem to be in direct opposition with one another, directly uh, opposite of the other, how do we handle uh, that and how do we pursue both of those things? Now, the common wisdom, stated or unstated, uh, within our culture and, and that most people, I think, would probably put out there, when, when God calls you to two opposite things, kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, the, the, the common wisdom is... You should pursue everything in moderation. You heard that before, right? You hear that from like a nutritionist, pursue everything in moderation. You hear that from grandparents at Christmas, everything in moderation. It's fine. This is what you, you hear. Unfortunately, it is also kind of the mantra of the typical Christian sitting in church on Sunday mornings too. Everything in moderation. That that is what we should do. Unfortunately, that does not lead to joy, that does not lead to excellence, that does not lead to the Christian life. It leads to mediocrity, and that is not what God has called us to. Everything in moderation is not the cry of the Christian. It is the cry of those who want Christianity to be built for them, and it's not built for us. This is what God has called us to. He's not called us to mediocrity and to moderation, but to wholesale, full-on, all-of-life commitment. Nothing in moderation. So if moderation isn't the way to solve the inherent paradoxes of our faith that seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, what is the answer? How do we do that? The answer is, I think, rhythm. Two truths fully pursued, but in specific rhythms that God has called us to live in. Here's, here's, what, here's, what, here's what I mean. Here's what I'm talking about. I've told you guys before that I have a deep-seated flaw in my brain. I cannot shake this. I cannot fix this. There is no amount of training that will, will, will get this out of my head. I can't get past it. And here it is. I have no rhythm. None. I cannot do anything with rhythm. I cannot clap and sing at the same time. I cannot do both of those. 
I can do one or I can do the other. Neither one of them particularly well, but I cannot do them together at the same, uh, same time. Um, I've tried and I've tried. It's just not in there. I once tried to learn how to play uh, guitar whenever I was in college because this is what you do when you're a college freshman. For whatever reason, you try to figure out how to play uh, guitar. And so I bought myself a guitar off of eBay. Uh, It was a nice little blue one. I thought it looked good, so that's the one that I bought. And uh, I had this guitar, and and one night some friends came over to uh, my uh, apartment. All of them brought their guitar, and their ambition was to teach me how to play guitar. They said, all right, we're going to sit down, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. We're going to learn how to play guitar. And what happened after that was six hours uh, of me, and these guys were all good musicians. They they didn't wait till college to get their guitar license or whatever it is. They just they just could play like they, they'd been playing and they were, they were pretty good at it. Um, and so they're like, out, they're playing Dave Matthews and they're playing all this other stuff. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're doing. How, how do you, how, how, how does one hand do one thing and the other hand do something else? I can't figure that out. What is your foot supposed to do? What, how, how does all of this work? I don't understand how, how this, this works. And so, uh, I was, I, I, I knew nothing. Somehow we landed on trying to learn how to play 3 a.m. by Matchbox 20. That was the the goal. Uh, And we started just trying to learn the chords in order to play uh, the the chorus. After several hours of me not picking that up uh, and not able to do that, uh, they decided, let's do this a different way. Let's start with the beginning. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to play, I'm going to ask Carter here to play the sum total of my guitar learning after at least six hours of instruction, here's what I, what I learned. So I'm going to let you all listen to this. Go ahead, Carter. Stop, right there. That is everything that I learned about how to play guitar. That is it. And part of the reason why I could play that part is because there's no rhythm yet. They've not started into the actual song where you're playing. Because So we tried to go to the next part, and I never could get it. It's not in there. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, if you had the right instructor, you just needed to practice more, listen to me. It is not in there. I could have practiced six hours a day since that day, every day, and it's just not there. Like, you, there's, you can't create something out of, out of nothing. I simply could not... Uh, could not do it. I can't clap and I can't sing. I can't, like, I just can't do all of those things. I can't, like, I, I'll get out there, start clapping, we'll be singing, and then I'll get off. And then I, the, the only way for me to get back into the song is to stop everything, recollect myself, and then decide, am I going to sing or am I going to clap? Which one am I going to do? And then I pick one, and then I have to fully commit to it to get back within the rhythm of uh, the rhythm of the song. I, I want to make music. I want to be able to do that, but I simply am unable to do that. I have to, I have to be able to, to find the, the beat of music and then fully commit to that and all of my focus on that, even if I want to just be able to, uh, to, to, to clap. And so, you know, musically, I, I, I have a ceiling that is probably lower than most of your, your floors. Uh, I just don't have much hope in finding uh, the ability to play music. But fortunately, God's goal is not to, to, to make me into a good musician. That is not the, the plan. Instead, he's looking to form and to shape us, and the rhythms he has built into our lives are there to do just that. They are there to 
uh, to shape us. I've, I've got this little thing right here to, to kind of illustrate a little bit more. Anybody know what this is? Anybody, what is it? Metronome. All right, so here's how this thing works. Let's see if I can, I can make this thing work. So it starts right here. There you go. I'm going to let that go for a minute until somebody in here's anxiety reaches a point where they're like, I can't handle that uh, anymore. Uh, so here's the idea. Like This just goes back and forth. It's got the perfect beat, perfect rhythm. Whatever this thing is doing, I don't have an internal one of those. It's not there. Uh, I can't do it. But this is how it is supposed to work for us in our Christian life. One leads to the other, to the other, to the other. It goes back and forth. That is the way they are supposed to work. And this is how you're able to do two different things at the same time, full on, instead of just the full pursuit. What's wrong is that often we get stuck. And it stays right here in this place. And it doesn't continue the rhythm, and we end up here, and we lose the beat, we lose the rhythm, we lose the way that the Christian life is supposed to work. And so the aim of this series is to get us back to this place where we're doing what we need to do in order to follow Christ the way he has called us to follow Christ. I am not going to let that go for the entire sermon because in about 20 seconds you will hear nothing that I say and only that the entire time. So I will stop that uh, right there. This morning, we're going to compare these two ideas of contentment and restlessness. And now, when you hear those, my, my assumption is that you, you see those two things as completely exact opposites. That to be content is to be without restlessness. That, 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 that to, to, to have one means that you don't have the other. But I don't think that that is correct at all. In fact, I think the biblical rhythm in following Jesus is that true contentment will make you a restless person. And the right kind of restlessness will be what drives you ultimately to find what contentment truly is. You confused yet? All right, good. So hang with me and we'll sort this out and I'll show you what I mean. But I think that this is true. The biblical rhythm in following Jesus is that true contentment will make you restless, and the right kind of restlessness will be what enables you to find true contentment. So let's see what Paul has to say. And the challenge of this series is that I need to illustrate two opposite points. I need to make the case for both of them, and then I need to talk about how the two work together. And so what I have found already is that I quickly run out of time whenever I do that. So I'm going to try here, and this one's even a little bit more complex than the last the last couple, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and we're going to end up going through verse, uh, verse 14. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And it's a mind-boggling level of Christianity, isn't it? That is varsity-level following Jesus. Varsity level Christianity right there. Contentment at all times and all situations. 
If you're like me, it can be easy to read a verse like that and, and just tap out. Just be like, man, if that's it, if that's what it, what it takes to follow Jesus, if that's what I'm supposed to look like, if that's what it's supposed to be, then I'm, I'm out. If that's what it means to be a good Christian, because uh, I can't, I, I don't think I can get there. That seems unattainable for me. That seems next level. I'm out if that's what is required of, of me. A verse about finding contentment really just makes me super anxious about how lame I am. Like whenever I read that, that's, that's kind of my takeaway whenever I read uh, something like that. And so the question is, how does he do it? Why does it seem so far out of reach for so many of us? Why does it feel like we can't reach this level of, uh, of kind of Zen contentment that Paul has apparently uh, found? Well, Paul's secret sauce is, is, is apparently also the way that athletes win football games too. Uh, whatever it is that Paul has found is the same thing that enables people to win uh, football games. Jesus gives him strength. But what does that verse really mean? It's all over the place. Athletes know it well, that, that Jesus gives him strength. That's how he's, he's found the ability to be content. But what does that, that mean? When I hear that, that I have found the secret to contentment, I, I, I hear that in one of two ways. And it just depends on which level of skepticism I am for the day. Uh, but I hear it in one of two ways. One is, is, a, is a guru with, a, with his arms crossed, right? Like I hear Paul like that. I have found the secret to contentment. Come, let me show you. Like, and there's like sitar music playing behind. And, and like that's the, the mindset. That, that's, that's what I hear when I hear Paul saying that. Like I've got it for you. Just come and sit with me and I will teach you to tra- I'll teach you how to, how to go into a trance and you will find contentment. So that's one way that I hear that. The, the other is is like this. I hear Paul like, uh, like an infomercial guy. Like, like he's saying he has found the secret to contentment. He's put it in a bottle and you can have two bottles for $19.99. But wait, there's more. If you call today, you'll get some water from, from the, the Jordan River and we'll even throw in a, a copy of your best life now. Like that feels to me like what, what Paul is, is saying whenever he says that. Like I've got the secret to contentment and I'm going to figure out how to bottle it and how to sell it. That, 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 that if, if we can just figure that out, then, then we would have all that we, uh, we need. Because it, it feels like that's the two ways for us to find contentment, right? In our default thinking, one is some sort of like out-of-body experience where you go into a trance and your mind is completely shut off. Or uh, as our Western minds have been, been conditioned to think, uh, you buy it out of a bottle. You buy it, and once you, once you apply just a little bit, things will get uh, better for you. And if you really had that secret to contentment and you could bottle that up and sell it, well, you'd never have to work uh, again. But that is not at all what Paul has in mind. He is driving at a central truth to the Christian faith, that lives rooted in this world will be beholden to this world's sources of joy and contentment. And very quickly we'll find that those sources of contentment will fail us time and time again. But lives rooted in Christ will be beholden to Him as the true source of joy and contentment. And it is there, as we, as we talked about last week, that the bread of life we eat and we, we will never be hungry again. And so Paul is simply recognizing, like, you know, whenever he lists, I, I, I found the secret to being content. 
in plenty or in want, when I have a lot, when I don't have a lot, when I'm hungry, when I'm not. His point is the things of this world do not have sway over my heart anymore. Now, he has learned that secret. He has found that secret. And he has done that through much trial, through much suffering, through, through, through much of following Christ and what it is that Christ has called him to do. But that is what he has found, is that if he wants to be content, his contentment cannot be defined by the things that are around him. It must be in something else. Our job is not to will ourselves to be okay with being hungry or poor or forgotten, or rejected, or embarrassed, or neglected, or persecuted. We don't have to, we don't have to play mind games, like, like, like Jedi mind tricks on ourselves, where we're like, no, 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 I'm totally okay with the fact that everyone excluded me from this. No, 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 I'm totally okay that, 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 that my bank account is completely empty. No, 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 I'm totally okay that I don't know where my next meal is coming from, that I don't know this, and I don't... We don't have to play these, these mind games and convince ourselves that we are okay with those things. We can say, I am not okay with this, but my contentment is not based on this. This is Paul's instruction for us. We don't ever have to be okay with those things at all. Our task is to simply make sure that those things don't have that kind of sway over us as they do the rest of the world. Why? How? That happens because our lives are not primarily rooted in this world. We are living for another kingdom. And what drives our heart are the things that are valued in that kingdom, not the things that are valued in this kingdom. What is most valued in that kingdom is the person and the glory of God. And that is where we find our contentment and our satisfaction is in pursuing that. So when Paul says he's learned the secret of contentment, he isn't saying that God makes him strong so that he doesn't feel the hunger pangs and so that persecution doesn't bother him and so that whenever the stones come flying at him, they don't hurt, they just bounce right off. That is not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying that we can embrace the good and the bad of this world without letting the good and the bad determine the condition of our heart. We don't have to redefine words. We don't have to play these fake mind games with ourselves in order to convince ourselves of anything. We have to do exactly what we do as people. Here's what I mean. A happy heart is a content heart. And we don't have to change that definition of happiness or contentment to make it fit our Christian life. I think so often this is how we, 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 we try to like reconcile things in the Christian faith is that we take the, 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 the standard definition of something and we say, well, I'm just going to interpret it to mean something else. That way I can pretend that I'm, I'm, I'm faithful in what it is that I'm doing. I, I don't think that that is what we are, are called to do. We don't, have to, we don't have to change the definition to fit Paul's exhortation that he gives us here. I think that this is true. A happy heart is a content heart. As, as, as true of you as a Christian as it is of your non-Christian neighbor. The issue isn't whether we're happy. The issue is where do we find that happiness? Is, is, is Paul saying that it, it, it doesn't matter? It, it, as Paul says, it doesn't matter if he has a lot or a little. He's, he's underlining this fact that his happiness is not found in this world. It is not rooted in what we can see and what we have in this world. It simply does not have an impact on him. Why? Because his joy and his happiness is found in God's kingdom, not in this world. 
And hear me, I'm not saying, I am not saying that if you aren't happy, you don't love God. We'll see that here in just a second. What I am saying is, is that there is a happiness that can be found in spite of the darkest and worst situations that this world can put us in. It is there for us. The task for us is to do the work to train our hearts in this way, just like Paul has, to train our hearts to find the joy outside of the circumstances of this world, to find it the way that Paul found it. Now, if my sermon was just about the idea of contentment, this is basically where I would stop. I mean, I would come up with some more applications. I would walk us through some different ways to apply this in our lives, but For the most part, this is where I would stop. That's the the message. Where is your mind and where is your heart rooted? Is it in this world or is it in God's kingdom? That's the ticket. That is the secret that Paul has found. But that's not the entire message because there's more that we need to talk about and, and, and we need to talk about this idea of being restless. Now, the idea of being restless, this is the word that I'm using because it's kind of a broad overarching term But it can kind of manifest itself uh, in a a few different ways. It can go by all kinds of other names. Worry, fear, anxiety, despondency, hopelessness, anger, unhappiness. All of those things can be, I'm not saying all of those things are, but all of those things can simply be manifestations of this idea of restlessness. Listen to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Listen to how he talks about this. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verse 4, and I'm going to go all the way through verse uh, 11, I think. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure, or, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished... And what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. A chasing after the wind. Varsity level accumulation. Like, I, I don't care what your house looks like, it's not this. He had all of it. He had every bit of it. And his sum conclusion of all of it was none of it mattered at all. It was a chasing after the wind. Now compare his assessment of his life with Paul's assessment of his. Where did he go wrong? Where did the writer of Ecclesiastes go wrong? It's the exact same lesson that Paul teaches us, just the other side of the coin. Paul says, I have found the secret of being content. The writer of Ecclesiastes could have just as easily said, I have found the secret of being restless. What's the writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, what is his secret to being restless? To focus on this world and to make all of your life about pursuing things that only matter in this world. That is the secret to being restless and not being able to find contentment. 
And here's the thing. This is the default mindset of our world. It is the default mindset of your friends. It is the default mindset of your parents. It is the default mindset of your children. It is the default mindset of kings and queens and of the poor and the powerless. It is the default mindset for you, and it is the default mindset for me. When we are born and as we live our lives outside of us finding Christ, knowing Christ, and pursuing Him, this is how we live, chasing after the wind. It is the fount from which restlessness and all those other things flow. Living for this world will eat at your soul and it will destroy your heart. That is restlessness. Augustine in his book Confessions says it this way. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So in this sense, restlessness is a bad thing. Essentially, all I'm talking about is the counter to contentment, right? You see how we're just, again, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. It's not something God is calling us to. It is exact opposite of contentment. The two are antithetical to each other. You simply cannot be content and restless at the same time. And so far, with the picture that I have painted, that's true. But it's a little more complex than that in, in two different ways. A little more So hang with me because the the turn that we're about to make right here is going to be the turn that's going to teach us, it's going to take us from from a a simple like this versus that to a a rhythm of pursuing both. So so hang with me. And I have to tell you, I believe that Augustine quote to be completely true with all my heart. But I also know a lot of people that seem to be very content that don't give a rip about Jesus. Jesus. And so if that is true, we got to do something about that. They don't care about Jesus, they don't care about God's kingdom, or they don't, and they don't care about anything outside of this world, themselves, and what they can accumulate. And they seem to be very content. Now, I would argue that there's almost certainly something going on in their heart where they are not truly content, but instead these other things are simply distractions that make them numb. But for the sake of argument, they sure seem content. I think of all, all of us can kind of like feel that sense of like, like, I don't have to be rich, but I could use a little bit more money and I'd be a little more content, right? Like, I think we all can kind of feel that draw and that pull just a, a little bit. Big houses and box seats seem like a pretty, pretty good pathway to contentment, at least from where I'm sitting. C.S. Lewis uh, writes about this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorites. It's one I I think I'm about to dive back into. In one of the letters, Screwtape warns the the chief demon trying to instruct his his, uh, apprentice. He he warns him not to get too excited uh, about uh, afflicting their their subject because one of the greatest weapons of Satan is what C.S. Lewis calls contented worldliness. Contented worldliness. A man content with the things of this world is a man Satan has no need to disturb. So simply because you, someone feels content and, and, and at least is, is, is working towards that with, with stuff, maybe they haven't quite gotten to where the writer of Ecclesiastes is. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the end of it all is that it was, it was, it was fruitless, it was pointless. Maybe they haven't quite gotten to the end of it and they're still thinking they've got that 
that contentment. So sometimes the person who feels content can high-five Paul and be like, yeah, Paul, I have found the secret to being content too. You're content, I'm content. But the reality is they've not, they've not had to find contentment in all the situations that Paul's had to find contentment. They've found contentment because their bellies have been full and their houses have been, been warm. And so they just, don't, they just don't know any better just yet. Hasn't had the world stripped from them to know just where his contentment lies. So that's one layer that, that complicates this idea of contentment versus restlessness. And here's the, the second, really the one I want to draw our hearts and our minds to this morning. God calls you to restlessness. All right? God calls you to restlessness. Every bit as much as he calls you to contentment. He calls you to both. You say, well, how is that possible? We just, we just talked about how restlessness is the opposite of contentment. We just read Paul. He says the goal is contentment. That is what we want. Restlessness is the opposite of that. Where does the Bible teach of a restlessness that is a good thing as opposed to something we should be trying to resolve as quickly as possible? My answer to you is it's all over the Bible. You just have to see it for what it is. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we have a story that, I don't think we read it this way, but it is rooted in this idea of restlessness. Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, has just died. He's just died, and and Jesus hears of this, and he kind of delays a few days in Lazarus' sickness to go, and, and he eventually gets there, and when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for a few days, and and uh, Mary and, and, and Martha, Jesus' friends, they, they see Jesus coming and, and, and they have a conversation with him. And it leads to this interaction in, in John chapter 11, verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. Jesus is here and he's, he's asking you to come out. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her were in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, and they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. And as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There's a whole sermon there that I'm not even going to touch. But when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And Jesus says, where have you put him? Lord, they told him, come and see. And then verse 35 Jesus wept. The favorite verse of everyone who's ever done a Bible drill. Jesus wept. Now, why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus weep? Clearly, Jesus had not reached Paul's level of spirituality. If Jesus had simply read Paul, he would be able to know the secret of being content. If he was as holy and spiritual as Paul, perhaps Jesus would have smiled, looked at Mary, and said, they're there, it'll be okay, you can do all things through me as I give you strength. That would have been Jesus' response to Mary, and that would have been his response. He would not have needed to weep because he would have known that was enough. No, obviously Jesus didn't cry because he wasn't holy enough or because he didn't know Paul's secret of contentment. He cried because his heart ached over what he was seeing. He was, in a word, restless. He was grieved. He was sorrowful. He was sad. Now, 
track with me here because this is the, the crux of the message I need you to hear this morning. Jesus was perfectly content in his father. He knew the secret to contentment far better than Paul ever did. And it is that perfect understanding and that perfect contentment that led him to this place where he would weep. So hear me. There is a kind of discontentment, and I would say contentment too as we just looked at, but there is a kind of discontentment rooted in this world that leads to a worldly restlessness. So long as our contentment is rooted in this world, it will lead to a kind of restlessness that is a worldly restlessness, a chasing after the wind, exactly as it is said in Ecclesiastes. It sees worldly problems and it seeks worldly solutions, but it never finds its rest. It lacks joy, it lacks purpose, and it lacks any ability to sustain peace and hope. And that is how most people live their lives. But there is a kind of contentment rooted in the kingdom and the person of God that leads to a type of restlessness that is altogether different. I'm going to call it, for the sake of giving it a name, a holy restlessness or a sacred restlessness. This type of restlessness isn't born out of a worldly discontent with the things that are going on around you. It is actually born out of a, the exact kind of contentment that Paul said he had. This kind of dissatisfaction with the world isn't because you don't have everything you want. It's because you are so dialed into the kingdom of God and, 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 and being content in the kingdom of God that, that as you go throughout this world, you are consistently seeing how this world, how this culture don't reflect the kingdom of God. Where the broken parts of this world become clearer and clearer to you because they don't look like God's kingdom. And in response to that, instead of wanting more of this world, your soul cries out, this shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be like this. And that is a holy restlessness. And we are called to that. In some measure, in some way, we are called to that place. This is what Jesus this is what happens when Jesus walks up to Lazarus's tomb. He sees his friend's tomb and the death and, and, and the death that this that was never how this world was meant to operate. Death is part of the brokenness of our world, brought on by sin and death. So Jesus weeps, not because he isn't content but because he's come face to face in this exact moment, he has come face to face with this reality that this broken part of the world is right here in front of him. And it shouldn't be this way. And for a brief moment, Jesus has the ability to do something about it. And so he does. He brings Lazarus back. That kind of restlessness is at the heart of every great movement by God's people in history. Revivals, missions, orphanages, hospitals. These are all things where God's people looked at different parts of this world and said, this should not be this way. They were so content in, in the kingdom of God when they looked at, 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 at and, and, and they're kind of operating from that place 
They said, not I need more to be content. They said, I trust God and who he is. And I am so in tune with God's kingdom that when I look out on this world, the broken parts just stand out to me. I see the broken parts. And when I see the broken parts, it's in that place that I say that that shouldn't be like that. And that is where there is a holy restlessness born in us and a burden given to us that says, and I'm going to do something about it. We are called to both of those things. Contentment and restlessness. We talked about Nehemiah 1 last week. It was in our scripture readings. If you guys did that this week, it'll be in your scripture reading again uh, this week. Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. He hears that the walls of the city are not there. And he, he weeps for his people. He fasts for his people. He laments the state of things. And he says it shouldn't be this way. And that causes him to leave everything that should have made him content in this world. Remember, he's cupbearer to the king. He's got a secure place. He's in the palace. He's got everything that should have made him content in this world. But it is a holy restlessness that causes him to say, I'm going to leave the things that this world says should make me content. And I'm going to pursue this thing that has made me restless, this burden that God has given me, because this is where I will find my contentment, because this lines up with the kingdom of God. And so anywhere that we can look at the world and we can say the kingdom of God looks like this, the world looks like this, and it shouldn't be this way. That is what God calls us to see and God calls us to pursue. This is not talking about your bank account. Like, I get it. You look at your bank account, you're like, it should not be that way. But that's not the idea of what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is where God's kingdom doesn't line up with this world. And you say, it shouldn't be like that. Let's Let's do something about that. Every ministry that we support in this church, that's, that's where the ministry was born out of. This is what Jesus prays whenever he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so then the response of God's people, of those that follow Jesus, is that we look around and we say, where is it that the kingdom of God, that, that, that the will of God as it is in heaven is not being done here on earth? And then you say, I will not rest until I see how this is, this is meant. This is how this works. This kind of restlessness is at the heart of your discipleship and following Jesus. Motivated to pursue Christ, not because you want to earn his grace, but because you want to look at your own life and all the ways that, that sin in your own life is there. And you look at your own personal life. I don't, you don't even have to look at, you don't even have to look at like big sweeps of the, the world. Just look at your own life and say, that should not be that way. My life doesn't reflect the kingdom of God in this way. And to look at the brokenness of this world, to look at your own sin, to look at all the, these different parts of the world and to remain content and not feel a restlessness is, is a kind of, I don't know if I want to say an evil, but, but it, it is an inappropriate response to this world when you see something that should not be and you are not moved by that. Are you tracking with me on that? 
Like, like to, to, to look, I, I'm not saying you can't solve everything. You can't fix everything. You can't bring people back from the dead. Nehemiah couldn't fix everything for his people. You read the book of Nehemiah and it's a, it's a train wreck beyond the building of the walls because morally they're still in a, in a rough spot. They haven't quite figured out how to be the people of God again, but he can fix that thing and that's the thing that God called him to. But to know that level of, of a holy restlessness, to experience it, you must know Paul's secret too. They go hand in hand. They are a rhythm, an abiding love for God and his kingdom, followed by a prayer that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They go back and forth. The two work hand in hand. They go together. And there is a beautiful kind of music that is made when you can find that rhythm. And that is what the Christian life should look like. That is what the church in the world should look like. Not all restlessness is created equal. They are not the same. Is your restlessness born out of a focus of this world or from a focus on his kingdom? If your restlessness is born out of, out of focusing on this world and not having enough, hear the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes. It is a chasing after the wind. What type of restlessness do you have? One type of restlessness, it it leads to life, the other to death. One leads to joy, the other to dread. One leads to purpose, the other to a chasing after the wind. One leads to discipleship, and the other leads to despair. But before you can feel that kind of holy burden... You have, to, you have to know Paul's secret first. And you have to be able to, to find your source of contentment outside of the things of this world. Because here's the, the truth. When you pursue correcting the, the brokenness of this world, you are going to come up against the brokenness of this world. And you will have to reckon with the, like, like often what follows is, is, is those things that this world values, those things that this world finds their contentment in, are the things that will be stripped for you from you as you pursue that burden. And so you have to be able to pursue this knowing Paul's secret. That's where it all starts. And so that's my question for you. Where is your hope found? Where is your satisfaction found? Where is it? I'm not here to condemn anybody. That is not my goal this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I am here to say that that finding your contentment outside of him is not a path to joy. It is not a path to following Jesus. It is the path the rest of this world is on. And so it is our task as Christians to do the work as Paul has done, whether that be through the path of suffering or whether that be through the path of of just simply following and going wherever Jesus calls us to. Where is your contentment? Do you find that in Jesus? Because he is the only thing that can sustain. Let's pray.
Father, it is our confession this morning. We, we, we cannot read your word this morning without feeling the conviction of all the ways in which we seek out contentment in this world. Whether it be in relationships or, or bank accounts or, 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 or 10,000 other things that Satan would use to distract us and to, to fill our hearts and our minds and our bellies with things that do not satisfy Father, give us eyes to see where we are chasing after the wind. May we know deep in our bones where our hope is found. And when we find that hope and we, 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 we lean in, into Jesus and we trust that his strength will, will help us to be content, Father, I pray that you would burden us. That you would open our eyes to things around us where things are are not as they should be. And you would show us what it looks like to do something about that in that moment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.